I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going through a little series of messages on the concept of submission. Submission from 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. Thus far, we have been going through the biblical text of 1 Peter 2 and 3, talking about the various areas in which the Christian is called upon to subject himself or herself, be in submission to those over us. Our series began actually in verses 10 and 11, where Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter does from that point of the biblical text onward into the first part of chapter 3 is to give us a series of submissive relationships that are a part of just about every one of our lives. And he begins, does Peter, talking about submission to the government, the government that is over us. And he gives that to us in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter then says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We're to be subject, Peter says, submissive, to the government that is over us. And we talked about that at length, didn't we? We qualified it, nuanced it about what happens when there's an oppressive government that commands you to do something that's unbiblical. We talked about that and we talked about how a Christian should respond when that is the case in your experience or mine. And then we went on to talk about submission in a work relationship. One of the closest parallels, I think, to what Peter says in verse 18, servants or slaves be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says in verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Peter says, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer or guardian of your souls. We talked a lot from verses 18 to 25 about the relationship of you to a superior, perhaps someone who is working over you 
as your leader, your employer, your, your boss. And we talked a lot about these verses as it relates to the kind of submissive relationship that you have also to the government, and that is that when you and I are submissive in the ways that Peter commands and describes, we are those who can be the greatest savoring of the gospel as unbelievers around us look at how we submit ourselves to the government and how we work. Because in the final analysis, all of these headship and submission relationships that we have in our lives for the entirety of our lives are all about our conduct and character as it relates to living out the gospel so that people can see our lives and the gospel will be commended to them. That's what it's all about. That's what all of these verses are all about here in 1 Timothy 2. 11 and 12 and 13 and on through even to chapter 3, which gives us in the first verse yet another way to be subject to someone over us. And in this case, it is a wife to a husband. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. And we covered some of this ground a couple of weeks ago. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So you can You can see the pattern here. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's a command. Verse 18, slaves be subject to your masters with all respect. That's a command. Here is a likewise third command. Wives, be subject or be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that's another way of saying even if your husband is not a Christian, they, that is your husband, may be one, one to Christ without a word, without uh, wordiness by way of the gospel. Some might even say uh, by a nagging spirit of the wife uh, trying to convince her husband to become a Christian. No, uh, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Again, there's a, there's a nuancing here. It doesn't mean that you never talk to your unsaved husband if you are that wife. You never talk to him about the gospel. You never articulate the gospel to that unsaved man. That's not what Peter means. What he means is don't merely commend yourself by way of your lips on the gospel front to him, but the most important communication that you have toward your husband is the very conduct of your life. And that falls right in line with what Peter's been saying about the conduct of your life as a worker and the conduct of your life as someone who's submitting to the government. It's about your life. And then when your life is commended to such people, then you have an opportunity then to articulate with your mouth the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ And by both your life and your lips, then, you are commending yourself to that person so that they too might want to follow the same God that you do. And so this is what a wife is to be all about, especially for those of you who might be living with an unsaved spouse. And you remember I said to you last time that whether you're living with an unsaved spouse or not, or perhaps you're not married at all, perhaps you've never been married, perhaps you've been married and then divorced, perhaps you've been married and then widowed, uh, any kind of scenario that you have and that I have, and even, of course, those relationships of a Christian husband and a Christian wife, remember that all of these relationships, everything in the panoply of all of what you and I as human beings are dealt with in this life by a providential God, all of these principles still apply. All of these principles still apply. It's the conduct of your life and the commending of the gospel by the spoken word to those around you when they see the stellar nature of how you are honoring your God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's what it's all about. Did you know, did you realize that in heaven there's not going to be any more evangelization of the lost? If you and I were to just think about that and to think that heaven will be ceaseless praise of our God, heaven will be that place in which there's no more opportunity to witness to the saving gospel of Jesus, which then adds for us the very critical need to do all we can in the here and now to see God use us in a, in a gospel profession by way of the conduct of our lives and the profession of our speech so that we are able to take as many by God's design with us to heaven as possible. Now we know that God is sovereign and we know that God elects those who come to faith in Christ. It is his sovereign grace to do so. But God also uses means. And the chief means by which God uses in this life to bring people to faith in himself, faith in Christ, is by your witness and by mine. Yes, God knows the beginning and the end. Yes, he effectuates that beginning by drawing people to himself. Uh, we, We would call this the calling of God. And then there is the conversion of men and women, whereby God regenerates a soul, and that soul then, by that drawing power of God, that soul that is regenerated by the Spirit of God, which comes to life so as to repent and believe in the gospel, will most naturally, and I would suspect most often, be commended to such a gospel by how they're seeing other Christians live. You might even say it in the reverse. You might even say that there are some people who look at the way Christians live and might say that seems to be no commendation at all. It could very well be that there are people who are in desperate need of coming to Christ and who are responsible to do so. They're responsible to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if they don't, they'll be cast in a forever hell, a hell of darkness. And what you and I want to do is so commend our lives and our conduct in such a way that we are seeing people through our witness, our sphere of influence, our place of impact, so that we can by the winsomeness of our life, by the grace of the suffering we endure, by the opportunity to see people place their faith in Christ by God's design and according to his will and even by his electing grace through the means of your witness and mine as we commend this faithful gospel to people who are commanded to believe. Now, you realize in about five minutes, I've gone through virtually the sweep of salvation history. And one of the most important aspects of the very sweep of that salvation history is when you and I are born onto the scene of human history and when God regenerates our dead hearts and we are then commanded to place our faith in Christ, and we do, and we repent of our sins, and we do, that by the grace of God, that by the gifting gifting of God, and there's another component to that, and it's not just our initial salvation, it's actually our longstanding sanctification. Now, I know it would be a lot easier for all of us, myself included, if on the very threshold of my salvation, I come to faith in Jesus Christ and I am, beam me up, Scotty, transported instantly into the portals of heaven where I'm enjoying God forever and ever and ever and a day. But there's this, there's this section of my life from my salvation, the very linear, uh, the very punctiliar point that goes linear along that continuum until my glorification that you and I call sanctification holiness, 
the living of our Christian life, the way we pursue our Christian life, and we struggle, and we groan, and we traverse in that Christian life with many stumblings, colossal failures, and we also have high joys. We also have tremendous corporate worship. We have opportunities in which you and I are brought into greater levels of this glorious sanctification that God is giving us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we're, we're, as it were, transformed from one level of glory to another. So that painfully and slowly, but surely, to its destination, you and I are pursuing such holiness so that we are truly prepared when the end of our life comes of being transported into the very portals of heaven so that we are transformed ultimately and finally to be just like Jesus Christ. And that, that linear continuum of that self, salvation sanctification in my life as I'm continuing to go through it, however painfully it may be, three steps forward, two steps back, Within that continuum is a kind of conduct that you and I ought to live, must live. We don't have the choice not to live in such a way that it might be said to be the most important element of my sanctification is not just my individual relationship with the Lord, but how I influence others for the Lord. It might very well be the most important aspect. It certainly is the most important mission. It certainly is the most important duty. And in our West culture, culture of the West, not just the Western United States, but the Western Hemisphere, that we are so wrapped up in individualized Christianity that we often don't realize the corporate nature of praying with and for each other of worshiping with each other for our glorious God and studying together so as to be equipped to be ready to go outside these doors into a very hostile world. And you know that's exactly what Peter is telling these beleaguered Christians. He's telling them, you're sojourners, you're exiled from your home place. And you're suffering greatly. And as you suffer, I want you to know that there are some house rules to follow. And these house rules will be very, very important for you as you traverse your way on that that linear path, that continuum of what we call the Christian life, sanctification, holiness, fruit-bearing, so that as you traverse that path, even though you're going to suffer, even though you're going to be beleaguered by those who don't like your message and your person, and yet God will give you grace and triumph over the kind of obstacles that you will endure so that you can be an effective witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ toward others. I think there's a lot of us, myself included, who would say, Lord, why are you looking at me at all? Could you not look to others who have a far greater testimony than my own? Couldn't couldn't you look for others uh, to do your witnessing for you? Wouldn't it be possible, Lord, to take uh, the most dedicated, uh, the most refined, the most instructed, the most consistent, the most disciplined among us, and and make them your ambassadors. Well, guess what? He's looking down at a ragtag bunch, including myself, top of the list. And he's expecting every single one of us who names the name of Jesus Christ to live in such a way that potentially the most hospitable Uh, hostile non-Christian around you 
could see the consistency of your life, the discipline of your pursuit of Jesus Christ each and every day. And they, if God opens their eyes to the truth of the way you're living, both by your life, your conduct, and your lips, God may be pleased. Think of this. Think of this amazing thought. God may be pleased to open up their blind eyes and their deaf ears to see the truth of the gospel by your lips and by how you live. Can you not think of a greater mission, a greater goal, a greater aspiration? I mean, I hear people all the time talking to each other and they say, what do you want to do in life? What are your goals? What do you aspire to do? Where are you headed? What, what kind of work do you, do you want to involve yourself in? What, what's the plan? What's your purpose? Uh, the, the purpose of your life, what, what is it going to be? You, you as an individual. Well, guess what? God's in charge of that. God's in charge of every individual plan and purpose and mission and goal and aspiration of every individual Christian. But when we come together and we learn together as Christians corporately, we're worshiping together, we're praising together, we're learning together, and in a sense, we all witness together because we need each other. We need each other and our prayers for one another. We need each other as we seek to learn together how to witness in substantial ways, uh, how to give great answers to those who are questioning the faith of ours. Uh, We need to be able uh, to understand uh, in our evangelization of others how we can effectively witness for Christ, not just answering objections, not just defending the faith, but even learning how to actually give a gospel presentation to someone. I've said it before, we've said it in our membership groups, we've, we've talked about this. Every single person in this church ought to be able to articulate the gospel to someone in anywhere from 30 seconds to two and a half, three minutes. Not a canned speech, but a carefully thought out gospel articulation with not fear but boldness so that someone that you may only know for three or four minutes of your entire life. You're on a plane, a bus. You're with an Uber driver. You're talking to a handyman, a salesman. You're talking over the fence to your neighbor. Whatever context that may be. You ought to be able to talk to someone in such a way that you're not only talking to them about your own personal testimony, as wonderful as that is, but you're also talking with them about how Jesus Christ can be the Lord and Savior of their lives. And you ought to ask God for boldness to be able to do that. I, um, last Thursday night, had the opportunity to be upstairs in my house, my wife is taking uh, daughters and daughters-in-law, whoever can show up on a Thursday night, through Pilgrim's Progress. And it's such a great allegory of the Christian life, including all of its trials and tests and its triumphs and joys. And at one point, I got a text message upstairs from one of the participants downstairs. Dad, questions, please come down. (laughs) So I walked down and there were questions about some of the aspects of what Pilgrim was was going through and some of his experiences and what about this. And then they were talking, these ladies, about uh, the idea of some of the thorny questions that might arise because of such an arduous journey. And we were talking about that subject. And after we finished, we prayed together. I had no intention of invading such an august group of ladies. But I was so thrilled to be able to do that. Number one, we were all talking about the Lord. Number two, one of the things that one of those participants said in that group was this. You know, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm realizing 
that it may be one of the examination questions of the Lord. Because remember, even when we're Christians and we go to heaven, it's not as though when we go, there will be no examination of our lives and how we live the Christian life on earth. The Bema Seat judgment that the Corinthians were told by Paul that they would undergo is that there would be an examination of how you took all of your gifts and all of your abilities and all of your time and all of your effort on earth and you were a steward of such things and God will do an evaluation of your life. And one of the things that this sweet lady said was, I just realized again, maybe even more powerfully, that every opportunity that I have and every person that I talk to, I'm sensing the need to speak to them about the Lord, to talk with them about whether or not they know the Lord, to not just invite them to this church, and if you've been invited by someone today, we're grateful that you're here, but to be able to talk to people because we know our time is short. Our time is so short. We are all dying, slowly but surely. And the opportunity is for us to see how other people around us in our own sphere of influence will respond to the gospel message and by our lives. But if we only have a few minutes with someone, taking that boldness and speaking to them about the gospel to see God do a work. Maybe you and I are just moving that person further along in this calling process. And someone, some one of you, may even have the opportunity, if I am able to do it or someone else in the church is able to do it, just moving somebody along in this spiritual path. I call it the spiritual alphabets. I could move someone to, from G to H. And you might be able to, to move someone from H to T and someone else might be able to, to lead them from T to Z. And that's, that's an opportunity. This, this gospel call is an opportunity for all of us to be reaching out forever and a day with people before we go to heaven so that maybe one of the grand affirmations of our God as he evaluates our life in heaven is the faithful witness that you were to try to reach as many people as you could for the sake of the gospel. Now, there are places where you can speak of that gospel very openly. There are places where you have to be very much more careful and discerning. Maybe perhaps your work environment, other places. But that's where you can really live a life of such profound sincerity for Christ that perhaps someone might say something like this, you know, there's something different about you. What is it? And then you can say, well, why don't we have lunch and I'll, and I'll tell you. Oh, how much time do you have? And they say, three minutes and 30 seconds. I got it. This is the, this is the answer to your question. And what if you're actually a spouse in a home where you're a Christian and your spouse isn't? Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. This wife, here a wife, and her submission to her husband is to be so commended by the husband by the conduct of her life that according to chapter 3 verse 2, he sees your respectful and pure conduct. Notice those two words, respectful and pure conduct. Those, those words we talked about last time, the kind of mortal, moral chastity, that's what pure conduct means. And respectful, that means that each and every area of your life is being commended to that husband because the well-roundedness of your life spiritually commends the gospel so that your husband doesn't see the kinds of contradictions and hypocrisy that often marks those who profess Christ. And then verse 3. This is where we left off last time. Do not let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Stop right there. Now, the command is to submit to your husband. The context of this particular passage is that you're submitting yourself to that husband who isn't a believer. And when you're in that challenge, that predicament, that that test, that trial, and if you're not able to win him with a word of communication about the gospel, then Peter says, here's what you ought to do by your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external. One translation, which I like, says merely external. Because we're not saying look like a hag as you try to witness to your husband. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that that is what commends the gospel to someone. But maybe Peter is saying that perhaps a wife like this or perhaps any woman for that matter is far too focused on the external aspects of their life. What people see. Do not let your adorning be external. And then he gives a few examples actually. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's communicating to these, to these women that the kind of jewelry they put on, uh, the, the kind of clothing that they wear could actually be a distraction when it comes to the gospel. Well, what kind of distraction? Well, you are spending so much time and effort on the outside part of you and not as much time and effort regarding the inside part of you. He's not saying that you should not emphasize any external part of you. But clearly, by way of contrast, he's saying that the character of a woman, particularly a wife here, especially with an unsaved husband, is that she should not put her full efforts in what people see on the outside, but the character of that godly woman that exudes from the inside to the outside. This is what we're talking about here. The way a woman fixes her hair, uh, what accessories she has on, the clothing that she chooses to wear, what really is most important is the heart. The heart. The contrast is between a woman and what she does on the outside as opposed to who she is on the inside. And he clearly, in verse 4, tells you by way of this characterological contrast, here's what I mean, verse 4, but let your adorning Using, of course, this metaphor, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I mean, what really matters, Peter says, is that when you compare the outside to the inside, the inside exudes the hidden person of the heart with multitudinous virtues. That's what he's saying. Because it's all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. That that linear, linear path, that continuum that continues on, that we call our sanctification, our holiness, our Christian walk, our Christian life, is all about the gospel. So let me ask you, ladies, How much time and effort, this is your your self-check, how much time and effort do you put on the external aspect of your life versus the internal? I'm not saying that the external is of no consequence. That is is not true. I I have five daughters. I have a, a wife, one, and I've only had one. And with six ladies in my home, 
It is often possible to see a lot of time spent on the external aspects of one's life. It is possible. But praise God, in the home that he graciously gave me, my people are far more concerned about the inside. I praise God for that. Have there been trials and tests and temptations to reverse that priority scale? Sure, I'm sure there has been. And I'm sure that every one of you ladies with the raising of the hand would say, it's often a a real challenge to figure out, do I want to focus more on the inside of my life or the outside of my life? Particularly for young ladies who are often wanting to see a man come into their lives, right? And perhaps you could be so concerned about your attraction to him that you do all kinds of things and you spend all kinds of time and perhaps even money also to ensure that that man is thinking more about your outside than your inside. That's a real temptation. Of course it is. The adorning, the braiding, the wearing... Do you see those verbs there? And he says, those things can't merely be what your priorities are. They, they have to be there for sure. Ladies, thank you for wearing clothes. <laughs> and thank you for wearing makeup. Because here's what I know. It's important to you, and therefore it's important to us, us guys. And it does make you more attractive. There's no question about it. In fact, if there are times, if there are times when some of my ladies don't think it's quite right to go out the door and the way they look, then it's going to take men more time. You know that, right? And in fact, when you men are convinced that you've done sufficiently what you need to do about yourself and you're going out the door and they look at you, these precious ladies, and they say something like, you're not going outside like that, are you? (laughs) Notice who's laughing the most. And then you and I say, no, no, I'm just going to go get the paper and... No, 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 I was just going to get the mail, just going to take a walk, and you come back in, and of course, you change your pants, you change your shirt, you redo your hair, because for them, you're an extension of them, and what's important to them, they believe is also and should be important to you. But I am here to tell you that none of us would say as professing Christians, nor should we, that the most important aspect of us all is what we're wearing. It's what we're doing by way of the gospel. It's the gospel. Did you notice that phrase there? That your adorning in verse 4 should be the hidden person of the heart. You know, I suspect the reason that Peter mentioned the hidden person of the heart is so that your priorities, ladies, could actually be more of an emphasis on something that's hidden that nobody else can see. And when you're working on that, that hiddenness can become visible by your behavior, by your words, by your actions. The hidden person of the heart. And then he says, with the imperishable beauty. Notice those metaphors. I mean... There's a temptation to think, ah, uh, your adorning, verse 4, your beauty, verse 4, that he's still talking about the outside, but he's clearly talking about the inside, isn't he? The adorning of the hidden person of the heart, this godly woman, this imperishable beauty of a lady is because she has a gentle and quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit. Well, what is is that? Well, it's an opportunity for you 
to be gentle and quiet. Now, I, I get it. Somebody's going to immediately say, that, as a woman, is simply not my personality. My personality is loud. My personality is bombastic. My personality is go get them. My personality is let me at them. Well, I would submit that if the Apostle Paul told Timothy to cease being timid and to be more bold, that perhaps we might say to some ladies, be less loud, be more gentle, be more quiet. You say, how quiet? How gentle? The Lord knows. And if you are aspiring to be this woman of 1 Peter 3, and if you're traversing along this linear continuum of the path we call the Christian life, the Lord will take the barnacles off of the rough edges of your life and he will bring you into a more gentle and quiet spirit that in God's sight is very precious. Very precious. I mean, I can't even think of a more commendable term than God saying about me or about you, that's one of my precious ones. They're gentle and quiet. And especially, I would think, because the contrast of this winning without a word, winning without nagging, uh, winning without a, a, a lot of verbiage by the character of the wife that perhaps because of her quiet and submissive and gentle spirit, she's going to commend herself to him that if God is opening that man's heart to the truth of the gospel, perhaps it's because he's seeing God work in her to such a righteous degree. Perhaps. I read a book many, many years ago by a young woman who was married Uh, who was unmarried, excuse me, and she was writing for others who were in this, we would call it, unequally yoked relationship. Christian wife, non-Christian husband. Her name is Jo Berry. I think she's with the Lord now, but she wrote a book called, I love the title, Beloved Unbeliever. Beloved Unbeliever. This is what she says. The meaning of gentle and quiet spirit is frequently misunderstood. The word quiet, as it is used in this passage, doesn't mean lack of noise or activity, but lack of agitation or harshness. It doesn't mean a godly woman is to be passive, complacent, or speak in a whisper. You see, all that I just said a moment ago about gentle and quiet spirit, and contrasting that with a loud and boisterous woman, is not to be offensive to any of you who think you have a kind of personality that is a little bit louder than others. I'm not condemning you. I'm not faulting you. But I think this is a good correction. It doesn't mean a godly woman is to be passive, complacent, or speak in a whisper. It doesn't mean that she can't differ with her husband or that she has to be withdrawn or uncommunicative. It means she is to cultivate the peace of God in her life. It won't be easy, Joe Barry says, but an unequally yoked wife is not supposed to worry about her husband's salvation. Instead, she has to leave him in God's hands. Because if she doesn't, she'll try to convert him with words rather than actions. She mustn't be anxious about what is going to happen to him or their marriage. She is to concentrate on being the best wife she can possibly be, loving and respecting her husband, enjoying their relationship, and leaving the results to God. Those are wise words. And I appreciate the fact that Joe Barry wrote it in that way, living and leaving the results to God. And of course, God is watching to see which women are responding with the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. And when they do, God declares that these women and their lives are precious to him. And you say, well, and what happens if God never chooses to save that man? I submit to you, 
she is both now and in eternity no less precious to God. No less precious. And by the way, everybody will have to give their own account to God as an individual. If she dies knowing that her husband didn't come to faith in Christ, she will still be commended by what she did when she lived the Christian life in front of others, including her husband. God is not obligating himself in this passage to say, if you live in this way, ladies, then your husband will, in fact, come to faith in Christ. doesn't say that, does it? There's no guilt-edge guarantee that if you live this way, it's going to happen. Boy, what a tremendous pressure it would be, wouldn't it? To say, well, I've got to live this way, and this is what 1 Peter 3 says, and perhaps there have been somebody who, who counseled such a person in this way, and if you do this, the Bible says you can win him by your conduct. No, God is sovereign, and God chooses those to whom he will save. And when he does, it'll be by that person's repentance and faith, that too a gift of God, but if God is pleased to use the character of your life as a gentle and quiet spirit, as one of the agents in the very redemption of that man, then praise God. Praise God for such a thing. And that'll be one of the things that you as that very wife are praising God forever and ever and ever in eternity. Isn't that true? I mean, every opportunity for God to use us in this life for the sake of the gospel toward others. I, I call it cherry on top stuff. Because, yeah, I'm responsible to live my Christian life. Yeah, I'm responsible to be consistent. Yeah, I'm responsible to pursue holiness. And yes, I'm responsible to commend the gospel to others by my life and my lips. But since God's in charge of who responds to such things, and if they do respond and God chooses to use me in what you and I would say is some meager, small way for the sake of his kingdom and the sake of the influence of someone coming into his kingdom, then you and I have whipped cream and cherry on top. Of course we do. And you and I have the opportunity to see our lives as precious. Can I give you an example as we close? Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And I can hear it. I can hear it. You know where I'm going. Calling that guy of mine Lord? Wow. Rascal. And you are her children, the Bible says, if you do good, that's good, noble deeds, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, what about, but see, you don't understand that, and see, I have the kind of husband that, and see, you just don't quite get it that, I mean, there's a thousand of them. Well, you haven't lived with, and I'll let you know that, and for us, it just doesn't work. The Word of God tells us that if you're frightened, if you're fearful about actually submitting to that guy, who is that unbeliever? I tell you, God knows it. And he knows it far more clearly than you do. And he's got all the contingencies covered. And you and I, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, that's calling him by a name, by a title of leader. Leader. He's the Lord leader of our home. You say, even calling this unsaved guy, the Lord leader of my home? Well, he's not even a Christian. He doesn't do what God says. In fact, in fact he, 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 uh, he stomps around 
saying he has no need of God, that he doesn't want God, that he doesn't praise God. Yes, that's true. That could be the person you're living with. And what greater platform, I ask you, would you might have if you were to submit to him in such a way that you are not frightened by any fear and that you would call this man your leader. I always remember and will never forget for the rest of my life that was when I was in pastoral ministry in Little Rock, Arkansas, there's this person in my mind right now who sought counsel for me for many, many, many years. And we poured over this passage and we poured over the scripture. And she was so forlorn and discouraged about living with an unsaved spouse. And I just saw this past week a Facebook post in which she says, oh, the bliss of being married to this man for all of these years and for God to now give us a Christian marriage. That may or may not be your experience. But if it is, it's an opportunity for you to say, I worked through all the frightening fears and I called him the leader of our home and God honored the effort. And even if God doesn't choose, my dear ladies, in this life to honor your efforts, believe you me, in eternity he shall do so. He shall honor your efforts to live for him all the days of your life. Let's pray together. Father, the the scripture is clear. We are clear that what scripture says is not to be denied, not to be debated, and certainly not to be dismissed. If This message today is a help to all of those, regardless of whether you're living with an unsafe spouse, to live our lives in a submissive way. We would say thank you, praise you, and that we too don't want to live with a government, a a boss, a marital situation that seems so crippling, so divisive, so fearful that we are asking you to remove us from it. And all the time you're telling us, I will give you grace to get through it. May it be so. And may you challenge us in our marriages, our homes, our workplaces, and under our government to give us much grace to endure. We love you, and we thank you for the instruction from this, your holy word. We believe it, and we purpose to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.